0: Well, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Sing hallelujah. And then I read someone said, now what? Now what? Uh, we, we, of course, know that Scripture tells us because Christ is risen, we will be raised to life. And this morning we sang a hymn of the Gaithers, Bill and Gloria Gaither, because he lived. Uh, God sent his son, they called him Jesus. He came to love and heal and forgive. He lived and died to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. Now on Good Friday, we, we particularly spent some time looking at um, the death of Christ on the cross, and reflecting on that, which also means that we then uh, spend time con- contemplating our own death. Uh, Romans six tells us that, uh, in a, in a wondrous, mysterious ways, when as we are united to Christ through the Spirit, that it is as if when Jesus died, we died. And when he was buried, we were buried. And when he was raised to life, we are raised to life. And really that Resurrection Sunday, this Sunday, um, will have its true significance and its true impact on our lives if we, in fact, have died to ourselves on Good Friday. Now, that this, this uh, truth about the resurrection is not only significant for one day, uh, the day that it will actually happen, it should have significance and an impact on our lives today. Um, and it's interesting because most books that, I, that I've looked at about the resurrection focus on defending it, defending its truthfulness, its, its historicity, uh really its importance to the Christian faith. There are few, precious few, that focus on the impact that the resurrection should have on our daily Christian lives. Um, but as we know, it, it it should and it does, and it affects us, not only in this life, but as we face death as well. Um, I found this book this week, Last Words of Sinners and Saints, it's really seven hundred final quotes of the famous and infamous and, and inspiring people. Uh, a fascinating read, to say the least, but it just reminded me at really how death clarifies one's theology. In the face of death, as you are to walk through those gates, what you truly believe will be expressed. Uh, and, so, and so many, of course, uh, do not believe, and, and for them it is absolute terrifying. Uh, for those who are in Christ and who believe in the resurrection, uh, we step through those gates knowing that our true life, our eternal life, is about to continue, shall I say, in, in fullness. And so please turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, and, and we will find in our passage this morning really three resurrection motivations, uh, three consequences or impacts the resurrection should have on our lives, uh, and perhaps on the lives of those around us. Uh, now, just as a reminder, the letter to the Corinthian church was a, there was a much loved church by Paul, the apostle Paul who, who planted the church but it was a church plagued with many problems problems of worldliness problems with pride and um, there were there were factions and immorality and indifference between the members and then uh, because of uh, the predominant cultural philosophy of dualism uh, it also impacted their theology their doctrine and they started to doubt or believe that the resurrection is in fact not true, that there is no bodily resurrection. And, and of course, Paul wrote the letter of Corinthians to correct many of these errors and to address many of them. And, and in chapter 15, the whole chapter really deals about, uh, with the, 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 resur- sorry, the resurrection. And, and we see that in verses three and Four of the of that chapter that really the resurrection is an essential element of the gospel that Christ died according to the scriptures and was raised to life according to the scriptures, and then verses five to eleven we we Paul records for us the eyewitnesses of Christ's resurrection. Verses twelve to to nineteen uh, really focuses on the emptiness of our faith if the resurrection was not true if Christ is not risen. Um, and then verses 20 to 28, the eminence of Christ, who is the first fruit of the resurrection, and because he is raised, we will be raised to life again. Because he is risen, he will reign in future. Because he is risen, death will die, and because he is risen, God will be God over all and all. And this morning, we find ourselves in In chapters 20, uh, rather verses 29 to, to 34, um, and Paul really takes his argument in defending the resurrection and he gives the reasons, the motivations why people do certain things, uh, things people will do only if there is a resurrection. And he points to the resurrection as the motivation behind these, uh, three experiences, three activities, really, um, and motivations, uh, the doing of which will, will be lost unless there is a resurrection. And so let us read verses 29 to 34 um, together. Just follow along with your eyes. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are they also, why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Be sober minded as you ought and stop sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Let us pray together. Father, as we look at this, these words, Lord, recorded for us, your words recorded for us through the Apostle in this letter to the Corinthians. Father, I pray that you would minister to our soul this morning as we think about your resurrection, and because you are raised, we will be raised, and and how that should impact us, Lord, each day. Uh, We pray, Lord, that, that you would open our Minds and our hearts, Lord, to hear and receive Your word, but Lord, that we would be not merely hearers of the words, but doers of it. And so, help us through Your Spirit, strengthen us. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. And so, really, we have we have three resurrection motives uh, uh, that would uh, that leads or helps us uh, or others unto salvation in in service of the Lord and also in. Our sanctification and and I, I know at, at first read of that passage you were wondering why on earth did he pick this? Uh, because it's quite an intriguing uh, few few verses uh, verse twenty nine and so the first one is uh, the resurrection a great motivation unto salvation. Uh, so how did he get that from that verse? Well, let's read that verse again. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead if the dead are not raised up at all? Why then are they baptized for them? And really the point that that Paul is making here, that unless there is a resurrection, many are uh, that are baptized for the dead, uh, if there is no resurrection, then why would they do that? Okay, a very intriguing verse. Uh, and... Uh, depending on on who you listen to anything up between 200 and 400 different types of interpretations of that verse and so we will work our way gently f- no no don't worry uh, i'm just going to to look at uh, a few of them a, a, really a couple of them that are erroneous and then the one that i think makes most sense to me um uh, and the first one is is that Some people believe that it is uh, talking about vicarious baptism or baptism by proxy, that you are baptized in the place of someone else or on behalf of someone else. Uh, It could be for a saved person that if a saved person died before they could be baptized, uh, then another person could be baptized in their stead. That was one one view. Another one uh, is that an unsaved person who died some time ago, uh, someone else could be baptized for them vicariously, and so the benefits of baptism would be passed on to them who already actually have passed away. Now, of course, that there is nowhere else in, in the Scriptures... Evidence of this practice. Uh, before this verse was written, nobody even thought about that. Uh, and since that verse was written, there were only two church fathers uh, that actually mentioned this in their writings. One is uh, Clement of Alexandria and Tertullian, and they both lived in the same uh, sort of time frame from about 150 uh, to 200, 220 A.D., And they were basically addressing, uh, those other Christians who were influenced by Gnosticism, Gnostic teaching uh, that taught that, uh, well, in in the pure form there's that uh, some an angel would be baptized on on the person's behalf but of course they have adapted that so that uh, a person could be baptized on behalf of another of course now the mormon church um founded by joseph smith in 1830 they believe in vicarious baptism and they defend the practice of this on this, using this very, very verse. But as we know, the, the Bible teaches that a Christian is baptized on, upon their confession of faith in Christ Jesus. Um, and a, a dead person cannot make such a confession, and therefore should not be baptized, because there is no redeeming uh, of anyone. Baptism does not regenerate. Baptism does not save. Baptism is merely a profession of faith um, to to the world. And so uh, we've we've seen that also the practice of of, of baptizing yourself maybe on behalf of a christian who died before they could be baptized even th- that is also not in scripture uh, and not necessary as the the uh, story of the thief on the cross would indicate that he died with christ and was with christ that day in paradise and there was no record of anyone baptized for or on his behalf and so really no reason for that uh, and, of course, the, the ordinance of the command to be baptized is given to, by Jesus to the church, who, who tells us to go and make disciples and baptize them, what? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so that requires some teaching. Uh, the Christian faith, we believe in one God and yet three in one. And so to be baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit requires that there uh, is some understanding of who God is and the faith that you proclaim in this, in, in, in the person of, of God, His redemptive work. Uh, that is that is the first sort of major view is that it's vicarious baptism or baptism by proxy uh, the second view that is also popular is is uh, really that they see baptism as a metaphor you may remember when jesus addressed uh, james and john who came to him and wanted to have positions of 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 uh, power or or significance in the kingdom of god jesus asked them can you go through the baptism that i'm going through and really the baptism there meant uh metaphorically his death and they of course said they would but so if you believe that this would is is referring to 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 dying uh, it would read being baptized by experiencing death and not baptized for the for the dead and as i said there are many many other views and i have to admit to you that i have not studied all 400 of them uh, but i've looked at, at a few of them um, just to satisfy my own curiosity and and to to meet my obligation before the lord to to you and uh, i i Understand that uh, my my the position where I land, I, I, we cannot be dogmatic about that. Um, uh, I cannot say emphatically that this is the, the 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 way to view this passage. And so, if you disagree with me, then I accept that wholeheartedly, uh, because ultimately this is a a, a very difficult verse to. To interpret, but I think what, what the, the the interpretation that makes most sense to me and fits in best with the rest of what Scripture teach is based on the really understanding that baptism is used here as a synonym for salvation. Uh, we know, of course, that someone when someone was saved, they were baptized um, uh, in in the early church. Um, and so and also the dead here is referring to Christians who have died before, and of course the proposition or the preposition for really should be translated because of. Uh, so baptism is physical water baptism that is meant here, I believe, uh, that Christian initiation right associated with salvation that, uh, as I said, Jesus instructed us to baptize those who uh, believe in Him in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then teaching them all things. And, of course, Peter, on his first sermon on the day of Pentecost, uh, after many who heard the sermon was pierced through their heart, and they asked, what must we do? And what did Peter say? Repent and be baptized. And so, that goes on through 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 uh the book of acts we record often the call was repent and be baptized and so baptism i understand in this passage to mean uh or to be synonymous with salvation and so and i'll explain a little bit more about that and the dead as i said would be christians who have physically died uh not unsaved uh, not a metaphor but but Christians who have died. And then the the preposition um, that is translated here, for uh, or in the ESV, on behalf of the dead, I think is best translated by the words because of. Now, that little preposition can be translated depending on the grammar and the context in a number of different ways. It can read, it can be translated as for the dead, on behalf of the dead, for the sake of the dead, in place of the dead, instead of the dead, in the name of the dead, because of the dead, concerning the dead, in reference to the dead, with regard to the dead, over the dead, or above the dead many of them actually would fit the context and even the grammar in this in this case and so really we end up having to choose having to choose which one um we think fits best with uh, the grammar context but then also with what scripture teaches us the, the the broader um uh, teaching of 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 scripture. And so as I said I believe uh in 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 view of my understanding of baptism that this is uh, uh synonymous with salvation and that the dead are, are Christians who have passed away uh, and of course translating this preposition because of um we can read the passage as what will those do who are baptized or or being saved or have become to salvation because of the dead if the dead are not raised why are they baptized? Because of the dead. Uh, now, if that's what it says, what does this mean? Uh, what does it mean? And so I think there are three different options that we can look at. First of all, is this, what will those do who came to salvation, who was baptized, because of the dead, because of a Christian who died in how they faced death? In the, in the process of dying and how they actually stepped into eternity. So that would be one option. The other one was, will be what will those do who came to salvation because of the testimony of a dead Christian. Uh, not because of how they died but because of how they lived their faith their their devotion their witness about christ their work for christ their worship of christ before they passed away and they've heard of them and therefore because of their testimony and their assurance of the resurrection god used that to prompt them to come to salvation or the third one is, Is what will those do who came to salvation, was baptized, because of the death of a much-loved Christian friend or family member? And because they desperately miss them and want to be reunited with them again at the resurrection, the thought of that is what God used to actually bring them to salvation. So all three of these scenarios uh, have been used by the Lord in the past uh, to strike the gospel of Jesus Christ home into the heart of a sinner. and so that they will bow the knee before Christ and confess Him as Lord and Savior, because there is a resurrection as evidenced by those who believed, but who are now d- dead and is past. Um, and there are countless of stories of, of, of course, people on their deathbed, how they stepped into eternity in such a way that moved others to believe, um, to be saved, ultimately, Um uh, who was not afraid of death, for they believed that the moment they absent of the body, they step into the presence of the Lord, as Second Corinthians 5 tells us. And we can just think of all the martyrs of the faith in, in, in Christian history, just starting with Stephen's death. Uh, I wonder what impact that had when he saw Stephen died and say, Lord, forgive them. Uh, and there was Saul standing at his stoning. I wonder what impact that had on Saul later on when the Lord appeared to him. And of course, all the apostles, by bar- the apostle John, died and martyrs' death. And so, throughout the ages, many who have believed, and because of the way they what they believe and the way they died uh, resulting in the saying that the blood of the martyrs is ever the seed of the church many came to faith because of how people died christians died in the past and of course if pardon me if you read the book uh, the fox book of martyrs uh, you could just marvel at the at the way many christians died quite horrific deaths and yet Praising God, holding fast to their faith, not fearing. Uh, there's this record of a uh, maybe lesser-known record of of a young man called Germanicus, who was thrown to wild beasts, and he acted in such a with such Christian courage, and he died in such a way that that many of the pagan onlookers really came to faith through watching him die. Of course, they are Polycarp, a well known martyr who was arrested and upon arrest, he asked the, the, the soldiers, "Can I pray for an hour and they, they granted him his request and as he prayed, they came to repentance uh, and Of course, when he was finally uh, put to the stake to be burned, they wanted to nail him to the stake, as the custom was, and he said, "No need to nail me i 'll stand i 'll stay and I, just the thought of that is incredible when when the pain of the flames start leaking on your body and you willingly stay where where they've placed you to be burned. Uh, massive impact on those who witness it. And so not only martyrs really, but everyday Christians, how they walk through the gates of death with no fear and, and, and great peace and full assurance. Uh, why? Because this life is not all there is. There is life after death. There is a resurrection. And people who truly believe that would face death in a different way than those who believe there is no life after death and no resurrection. Uh, the, The Puritan Thomas Brooks says, a man that sees his propriety in God knows that death shall be the funeral of all his sins, sorrows, afflictions, temptations, desertions, oppositions, vexations, oppressions, and persecutions. And he know that death shall be the resurrection of all his hopes and joys and delights and comforts and contentments, and that it shall bring him to a a more clear, full, perfect, and constant enjoyment of God. Death is not something that we should fear, because there is a resurrection. Uh, And so there are countless of testimonies of those who came to faith in the way that people died. But then, of course, there are also many who came to faith based on the testimonies of how Christians lived before they died. Uh, Maybe recorded for us in biographies uh, or told by others, they lived with an eternal mindset. They lived with their eyes fixed upon Jesus, the Author and Perfector of their faith. Uh, uh, they 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 live, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of of God. Who set their minds on the things above and not on the things of earth. So they walk by faith and not by sight. They they forsook uh, earthly fame and fortune for true heavenly riches and eternal joys, those who die to self to live for Christ. Uh, and, and we have people from all walks of life that we can uh, recall or even read about. Uh, those who are well known to us, uh, theologians of the past. I think of some of the reformers of Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and John Knox. And there are missionaries that we look at how they lived and the, and the hardship they endured in serving the Lord. Uh, William Carey and David Livingston and Hudson Taylor and Jim Elliott. Then there, of course, were preachers like Chrysostom and Richard Baxter and John Newton and Spurgeon. All of their lives really inspire us and have brought many others. God used that to bring them uh, others to salvation. The same with musicians and artists and writers. Uh, Johann Sebastian Bach and, and George Friedrich Handel and, and, and Rembrandt van Rijn and Feudor de Dost. Dos <laughs> toyevsky where's kuya He can help me uh, uh and c s lewis and and Charles Wesley and Fanny Crosby all of those people and and the writings that they uh wrote and and the acts that they did the the music and the paintings uh, in, uh god used to to bring others to him to soften them for the for the gospel message to receive and and believe and and of course uh, there are these well-known figures but but there are many unknown people uh whose testimony is probably more powerful because it's closer to home they would be those who family members but maybe maybe an example of a godly father uh, or the faithful prayers of a loving mother or or the devotion of a of a brother or a sister and because they believed in the resurrection because they believed there's life after death they lived in a in a way that inspired others so i want to live like that and ultimately god used that to bring them to salvation and then the third one was the many of countless pe- people wishing to be with their departed loved ones, maybe a a husband um, or a other family member or wife that passed away, and that person longs to be reunited with them. Uh, and so Lord used that to soften them to the gospel and bring them to salvation. And, and really, Paul comforts the Thessalonians with this very truth when he says in First Thessalonians 4.13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, meaning those who have passed away, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And so even in the midst, even in our midst, we have people who uh, long to be reunited with a family member who has gone ahead before them to the Lord. Uh, And so Paul's argument in this first verse is that if there is no resurrection, then these people would not live this way ways they would not die in these manners um, and therefore they would not come to salvation but because of the hope of the resurrection the reality of the resurrection these people are examples to others and therefore god used them to bring others to salvation so the resurrection is a is a great motivation unto salvation it's also a great um, Motivation in service. Verse 30 reads, Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And so, if there is no resurrection... (laughs) Then why would anyone persevere through trials, through, through hardship, through, through difficulty, through, through fear of their lives in serving the Lord? If there is no resurrection, why endure? Why focus not only on this life and the things of this life? Why invest yourself in a life to come? And Paul actually takes this quite Personally, he says, "Why are we? Why are we in danger every hour? Why are am I and those with me in harm's way every hour in this life? If this life is all there is, why why would I put myself through this? And, and we we can put ourselves in that in that situation. Um, and Paul is sort of uh, anticipating their objection and Ah, oh, Paul, really, every hour?' Uh, you don't have it that hard. You're such a drama queen, Paul. Uh, but Paul responds very strongly. Uh, he says, "I die daily." I mean, in the Greek, that 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 phrase is put in the beginning of the sentence, which emphasizes it. And then he says, "I swear to you." The Greek again has used a little particle that indicates this is uh, an oath that that. Uh, Paul is making. I swear to you, and I swear to you on what is very precious to me, and that is my boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus. Of course, normally we swear by something that is very precious to us, so that at the last of uh, that, that when our words are untrue, we would forfeit uh, what we've sweared uh, upon. And so people sometimes, uh, and I know it's not in this church, but they would, you would hear expressions like, I swear on my mother's life that this is true. Well, it means that if it's untrue, then you forfeit the life of your mother. Uh, and so Paul uses here something that is very precious to him. And he says, I swear on the joy, I swear on the pleasure, the privilege and the reward that I have for bringing the gospel to you as Corinthians and to start the Corinthians church, which I have in the Lord and this is very precious to me and so i surely tell you i die daily and paul was not lying Um, jesus said to the reluctant ananias who were to baptize paul upon his conversion uh, that he would suffer much for the sake of christ and as we follow the book of acts we see him literally suffering everywhere he goes Paul, following his baptism, immediately started preaching the gospel in Damascus, and then there was a plot by the Jews to kill him, and he had to be, uh, he had to escape that city by being lowered in a basket through, a, through an opening in the wall. And then he went to Jerusalem and basically was shunned by, by those believers in, in, in Jerusalem because they were afraid. They did not believe he converted. And then, Following his life and his first missionary journey, he was opposed by the false prophet Bar-Jesus in Pathos. Uh, this is chapter 13, uh, persecuted and driven from Pisidian Antioch, Chapter 13, 50, in Iconium, some planned to mistreat and stone him, and he fled. Chapter 14, verse 5, in, in Lystra, he was actually stoned and left for dead. Chapter 14, verse 19, later we read that he's mistreat- he was mistreated in, uh, and imprisoned in Philippi. Chapter 16, in Thessalonica, Thessalonica and Berea. And chapter 7, in Corinthians and Ephesus and Jerusalem. Everywhere he went, he was opposed, he was... Threatened his life was threatened, and so we find this summary of Paul uh, defending his apostleship, as, as summarizing really his credentials as the one who suffered for christ, and he says second uh, corinthians eleven twenty three are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane." In more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I spent in the deep, I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers of rivers, dangers of robbers, dangers of my countrymen, dangers of, from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from these external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches." Why would Paul do that? Why would he put himself, why would anyone do that? If there is not the hope of the resurrection, that he will be with Christ, that he will reign with Christ, that he will be rewarded by Christ. Second Corinthians 4 verse 8 tells us uh, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. And he says, because Jesus is is raised, and because they will be raised, they will endure all these things. They die daily, so that the life of Christ will be manifested in the So why keep on doing this? Why putting himself through that if there is no resurrection? If there is no hope of seeing the Lord again, if there is no reward, if there is no well done good and faithful servant, if there is no reigning with Christ, if there is no inheritance with Christ, if there is no resurrection, people would simply not endure, will not persevere through suffering. We would not have Hebrews 11 in our Bibles if it was not for the resurrection and the promises that God made. Speaking of the descendants of Abraham in Hebrews 11, verse 12 reads, Therefore there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead, as many descendants as the stars of uh, of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promises but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they have been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. God made wonderful promises to Abraham and his descendants, and many have died hoping for that, not seeing it in, in the flesh or in, 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 or by sight. Verse 33 of Hebrews 11, who by faith, speaking again of those who've overcome, Who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword from weakness, were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they may might obtain a better resurrection. And others believe, uh, so others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill treated, men whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and the holes in the grounds. All of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. They believed, they hoped, they lived in this life in a way that reflects their faith in the life to come, in the resurrection. And so back in in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that he fought with wild beasts in Ephesus. And he says, if this was purely for human reasons, if this was just for me to, to show off my strength or, or to get some fame or because I'm just plain stubborn and I don't want to listen, uh, that's not why I did this. No, it was because he knew he would stand before his Lord. That he will need to give an account of the ministry entrusted to him. Of the stewardship of the gospel. His very life redeemed by the blood of his Savior. And so we can go through all of church history. People who suffered, they endured, they persevered. Why? Because they will be raised to life again. They believed that. And it impacted their everyday life here. They look forward to a better resurrection. They know that they are, the moment they are absent from the body, they will be present with the Lord, and they know that they will reign. If they endure with Christ, they will also reign with Him on earth. Now, there's there's a little bit of uncertainty of whether Paul actually fought uh, with wild beasts in Ephesus. Some argue that this is not mentioned anywhere else, and because of his Roman citizenship, that that would not have taken place. but and perhaps it was a metaphor a metaphor for the riot that he faced in Ephesus when they opposed him uh, but it was a known practice at that time that that people uh, who were considered criminals were were cast to wild beasts and and furthermore, his Roman citizenship did not protect him in Philippi when they beated him and, and cast him into into jail, so perhaps it did not protect him in ephesus uh, and by reason, those who would throw him to the lions or the wild bees would, if he perishes, they would have no one to answer to, because who's going to complain to, to Rome? Uh, actually tradition have it that something similar happened to Paul as that happened to Daniel, that the wild bees just didn't attack him, and he managed to, to escape. We don't know. We, we don't, we don't, un- we don't know if that was for real, but I believe it says it so, so, uh, He says he was willing to even go through that. Why? Because of the resurrection. He was willing to serve the Lord. Uh, and And if the dead are not raised, then this life is all that we have. So let Rip enjoy the here and now. Avoid any suffering and hardship as you can. And Paul quotes Isaiah, Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Really an attitude that God condemned among the Israelites when, when they were under threat of Assyria and was about to perish. And, and they uh, really trusted on their own, their own preparations to withstand this onslaught and then said, Okay, well, we've done everything we can. We're going to die anyway, so let's party. And God condemned that. Attitude and say you should have repented in in sackcloth and ashes, and turned to me and call out to me for your protection, uh, and not to give yourself over to this uh, temporal hedonistic view of of life. Uh, something which is very evident in our days, where m- many people have no uh, thought or suppress the thought of a life after death and having to face Christ after this death. And so they just abandon themselves to pleasure and uh, vices in, in this life because they believe that there is all, that is all that he, there is. And why not, is Paul's argument, if there is no resurrection? If there is no life after death, why, this would be an acceptable attitude to have, because you would have nothing else to live for. So why suffering this life? But Christians persevere. Christians endure. Christians remain faithful to the calling of their master because there is life after death because there is the promise of the resurrection because there is the promise to reign with Christ the promise to endure uh, the promise to reign with him for those who endure the promise of reward for faithful service how wonderful it will be when we stand before the Lord and he says well done good and faithful servant you were faithful with few things I will put you in charge of many. Or as Luke says, I'll give you ten cities or five cities. Enter into the joy of your master. So the resurrection is a great motivation unto salvation for those who look upon our lives and how we live and face death. It's also a great motivation for us in service in perseverance, in continuing even through hardships, being faithful to the Lord, even when life is difficult. And resurrection is a great motivation for our sanctification. Verse 33, said, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Paul warns them not to be deceived, not to be misled, not to stray away from the truth, the reality of the resurrection, for it has great moral implications. He used this well-known proverb at that time, bad company corrupts good morals. And in essence, what he is saying is that bad doctrine leads to bad living. Bad theology brings forth Bad living, immoral living. And the reason I say this is the word company here, of course, has a, has a reference to, to your companions, to your association, but the, but the emphasis is on the conversations that you have with your companions. The, the opinions that they have, the teaching that they that they bring. The Greek word is homolia, from which we get homily uh, or homiletics. Uh, teaching, instruction, speaking. And so Paul is warning the Corinthians, says, be careful to whom you listen to. Be careful to whom you lend your ears out. Be careful of who you allow to instruct you, to teach you, to counsel you. Who speaks loudest in your life? Who speaks most frequently in your life? Most persuasively in your life? Now, as I said, the Corinthian church were heavily influenced by the culture around them who had this dualistic worldview, which meant that uh, they view the spiritual as good and, and material things as, as evil. And so that led to two practices. One would be an ascetic type of lifestyle where because everything is evil, you were trying to avoid everything. And, of course, many of the, the, the food that they would abstain from because of that. Or others say, well, it's bad anyway and it doesn't matter because the spiritual is all that matters. And so they just give themselves over to every wanton pleasure that there is. And of course, this view, because the material is evil, also in, uh, affected the way they view the resurrection. They could not believe that God would actually raise up a body again. How can that be? Because the material is evil. And so there's some that started to deny the resurrection. Which resulted in immorality. In bad morals. It corrupted their morals. And just read Corinthians and you'll understand what Paul is saying. This bad doctrine, bad theology leads to bad morals. Distorted views on right and wrong. Error and falsehood and lies, they are the bedfellows of sensuality and sexual immorality and greed. And the scriptures make this link repeatedly where bad morals and sensuality and immorality really is linked to false teaching. From Balaam in Numbers to Jezebel and the Nicolaitans in the Revelations, always false teaching, erroneous teaching, evidence itself in immorality, ultimately. And much of the moral decline that we see in, in our modern era now in our church really can be traced back to bad doctrine. To the denial of certain truths that Scripture clearly teach, the rejection of God himself has resulted in gross immorality in our time, the denial of creation, the belief that man is essentially good and not depraved, that there is no hell and ever no judgment, and that there is no resurrection. All of these things have impact on how you live. So Paul says, be careful to who you listen to. Bad company corrupts good morals. And of course, as I said, this had a particular application to the Corinthians, but it is true for us too. Who do you listen to? Who, who do you believe? Who determines how you live? Ultimately is the question. People, the implications are massive. It is huge. Personally, who speaks loudest in your life? The Word of God or the world? Who speaks most often in your life? The Spirit of God or the Spirit of this age? Proverbs 4.23 tells us, be on your guard, guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the issues of life. Proverbs 13.20 says, he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. A fool, by definition in scripture, is he who does not believe in God. Romans 12.2 tells us not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed, how? By the renewal of our minds so that we may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And forfeiting and forsaking the belief in the resurrection remove really the consequences of our sin from us. So who do you believe? Who do you listen to? Our parenting, not only personally, but how we raise our children. Who speaks loudest to them? Who speaks most often to them? The scriptures or the secular school curriculum? We currently see an openly admitted agenda by the LGBTQ plus community for the minds of our children. And it's simple, simple ABCs. Attitude shapes action. Beliefs produce behavior. Curriculum controls conduct. Doctrine determines your deeds. What your children are being taught is how they will turn out. And so follow the biblical curriculum. And teach them. The biblical curriculum, just just use... Proverbs as an example just a few the first 6 or 8 chapters of of um, of Proverbs says repeatedly listen to the instruction of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother Proverbs 1 warns against bad influences by bad friends it says if your friends entice you do not go with them do not follow them. Chapter 2 talks about the need for wisdom and the benefits of godly wisdom. Chapter 3 talks about really how to please God, that we should buy kindness and truth around our necks and write it on the tablets of our hearts so then we will have good favor with men and God. And then he talks about creation, how God created the world. Chapter Four talks about right and wrong chapter five and Chapter seven talks about well speaks against immorality, and Chapter Six is just a, a number of of sections of good counsel how to, really speaking about our work, ethic and truthfulness and so people we need to wake up. We need to make sure that our children hear. God's word, God's curriculum, because bad doctrine produces bad living. Bad company corrupts good morals. And of course, that's not only personally and parenting, really, it's for preaching. The church that you attend, do they teach the scriptures? Do they teach sound doctrine? Theological error has evil consequences. And I don't know, speaking to uh, the few who may ever see this or watch this, I pray that you would look at your church and see, do they preach the scriptures? Do they preach sound doctrine? I pray that they do. Because if they don't, it will evidence itself in immorality. Peter warned the church in Second Peter 2, verse 1, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there were also false teachers among you, <clears throat> who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality. And because of the way of the truth, will because of them the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their justice, their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And Jude likewise warned the church, Jude three and four, beloved. While I'm making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed; those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. People, the, Christ wants to, wants his bride to be pure. He wants his bride to be holy. Without spot or wrinkle. And it's achieved how? Through the cleansing, through the washing of the word. And so, be sober-minded, become sober-minded, Paul told the Corinthians. And stop sinning. For some of you have no knowledge of God. Wake up. Believe rightly so that you will behave righteously. Those who teach that there is no resurrection, Paul says they do not know God. They have no knowledge of God. It does not matter how many theological degrees they have. It does not matter how charismatic a leader your pastor may be. If he is not teaching sound doctrine, then he does not know God. It would be like the Sadducees, the uh, group of leaders at the time of Jesus' ministry on earth who questioned Jesus about the resurrection all the while not believing in it. And Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they will neither uh, marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what I was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the living the Lord our God is a living God, and He is the God of the living. All those who have passed this through this world, believing they are God, He's still their God. They are with Him, and they will reign with Him. And Paul says, I speak this to your shame. Paul loved the Corinthian church. And despite the many problems they have, as I said, he brought them the gospel, he taught them the scriptures, and now they have departed from that truth, influenced by the false teachings of others. And he said, you should be ashamed of yourself. Believing false doctrine always brings sin and shame. Just in closing, I mean, I, I would be surprised if there is anyone, maybe a little bit alarmed, if there is anyone in this church who do not believe in the resurrection, that there is life after death. We all would affirm that wholeheartedly. We believe that. But do we live as if we believe it? Would our life and our death Inspire others to salvation? Would our service testify to our faith in the resurrection? Our faithfulness, our perseverance in the face of difficulty and hardships, opposition? Would our holiness, our godliness, our purity, our sanctification, will that testify to our faith in the resurrection, not only of Christ but of us, that we will see the Lord again, that we will be with him, that we will walk with him, that we will reign with him. People, the resurrection is true and real, and it has real-life consequences for us all. And it serves as a great motivation unto salvation, a great motivation in service, and a great motivation for sanctification. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And because He lives, we live Let us live that life in such a way to testify to our faith, our belief, our hope in a future resurrection. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you, Lord, with with joy in our hearts, Lord, that we know that you live. We know that you are risen and you are seated at the right hand of the Father. Lord, awaiting for your enemies to make to be made a footstool for your feet, and that you will come again, and that you will rule, and that you will reign. And when you come again, you will bring all those who have believed in you, whom you will raise to life again, glorified bodies, Lord, equipped and fit for an eternity of worship and praise and service of you. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would not just live with the distant hope of the resurrection, but that the truth of the resurrection would impact us today, each day, in the way we live, in the way we serve, in the way we grow in holiness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.